Father in heaven, we come to you thanking you so much for the access into your presence that we've already spoke about, spoken about and sung about. Thank you that you forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. You have taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Thank you. And so we are bold now, in Jesus' name, to ask that you will enlighten us by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you that it's your word, but we need your Holy Spirit. Every time we consider it, every time we preach it or think about it, so we pray that he will enlighten us all and that he will guide and help me. Please, O oh God, speak. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Okay, let's read Job 11. Yes, yeah, so, right, Jim, yeah, let's it'd be good if somebody read this. This is page one, 517 in my NIV. Uh, Anna, I think. Hello, yep. thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's not very easy preaching on Job, so I'm kind of crazy to be doing this, but I'm not really. Um, you take the Bible quite seriously in this church, don't you? Yeah? That's good. I think you take the Bible more seriously than most churches do, even ones that they say they believe it. When that lady, sorry, now you're Molly? Anna, sorry, yes. Terrible memory. Molly's good from there on. <laughs> when Anna was reading, every one of you was looking down following it. Now, some of you might have been looking down and thinking about something else, because that's what you do in this church. You take the Bible seriously. It's the Word of God, and Bible ministry is very, 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 very important. And that's good. I, mean, yeah, I believe that. I agree with that. I believe the whole Bible, from Genesis 1... Revelation 22 is God's word. It's what God says. And as Augustine of Hippo said a long time ago, what scripture says, God says. And the Lord Jesus, and, and to follow Jesus, really, the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, we need to take that attitude. Because Jesus says in John 10, round about verse 34, 35, scripture cannot be broken. So he clearly taught us what's in the Bible. The people who wrote it, they've been guided by God. So that's good. That's good. I affirm you, as they say in America. And that's, you know, that's good for your self-esteem and you go away, you know, 0.001% happier than you came in because of that affirmation. And Alex might even feel cheered up for three minutes <laughs> since he's going to be the pastor around here or something. That's good. So you believe the Bible and you read the Bible and you have talks about the Bible. Good. But it's very dangerous to do that. You know? It's very dangerous to believe that this, in a unique way, from cover to cover, is the word of God. I, I do believe that's the case. It's quite dangerous. Now, okay, it's even more dangerous to believe that it's not. <laughs> so I'm presenting you with dangers, yes. I'm saying life and the Christian life and church life is high risk. Yes, it is. It's like walking across a tightrope. And there's no safe bunkers and settees on either side. It's very dangerous and silly and wrong not to believe this is the word of God. But it's also quite dangerous to believe 
that it is the word of God and to take it really, really seriously. To believe it all. What kind of dangers am I talking about? That's a good question, and I'm going to throw that out to the audience. There's not that many of us. We immediately do a bit of interaction. I gather this is not without precedent. So why do you think I might be saying today that it's quite dangerous to believe that here in our hands we have, in some sense, the totality, at least in terms of an inerrant, infallible, canonical word, why is it dangerous to think that here we have the totality of the canonical word of God? Why is that dangerous, guys? Anybody? Anybody's brain ticking? Anybody on the same planet, crazy planet that I'm on? Yes, yes sir. Yes. We can prove text. We can prove text. We can, we can prove anything. Yeah. Like... Uh, we've got, have we got an agenda or we haven't got an agenda? We just misunderstand something. And yeah. we make that... Yeah, but that means we need to be taught by sensible people and by good books about how to interpret it properly. Yes, that's very dangerous just to prove text. But even if we interpret it properly, it's dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Can you expand on that? In our arrogance, what might we do even if we're not misinterpreting by proof texting? This man or anybody else. But you know what you... In what sense? What's the connection with arrogance and that? Well, you... If you think you're right, yeah. even if you are right, and act as if you can just run roughshod over every other person who disagrees. Yes. You can... You can make, you can make one point. So the thing, the thing with the Bible, of course, is it says lots of things, but... They're not contradictory, but they need to be intentional. And if you just highlight one, it's the other. Yeah. You can end up feeling you know it all, and you're better than the people who interpret it differently, for example. That's part of what you were saying, yeah? Yeah, that's, that's a danger. Yeah, anything else? I mean, that's sort of vaguely where I was drifting, I think. I will get down to my text tonight, don't worry. Um, anybody else? You were thinking about something, were you? I was thinking about it. In the context of society, it can feel dangerous because the majority of others think otherwise uh, and would, would, would disagree with us when we say, but that is what God said to us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And would say, um, even if we weren't actually being arrogant, might say that we are. Yes, yeah, so we might be thought of or accused or even treated as arrogant or worse. Yes. Yes, that is certainly so. Yes, Anna? Yeah, yeah, that could, yes, yes. Yes. Well, there's quite a few dangers here, aren't there? Yes. Okay, I'll, I'll get into my text, because the text is dealing with one, at least one of these dangers. 
Yes, okay. Yes. That's some good, that's a good answer there, I'm sure. What I was also thinking um, was, and it's very close to one or two of the answers, we can think... We can think that we know all the answers about God. We can think we've got all the questions sorted out. That we kind of got God and salvation and how to live nailed. You know? We've got a, we've, you know, we've got 100 views, 200 views, 300 views. We've been to Christians a while and read the right books or listened to the right sermons. You know? We've got it. We can feel that we've got it nailed down. We've got correct answers to all the, the really important questions. And, and we might get to a point where we're even using our intellects to try and, almost to try and control life. To feel, well, you know, in all future situations, I know, I've got my grid. I know what I would do in that situation. And in every situation, I know how I should trust God. And, you know, I've kind of got it nailed down. I've got life. And, and God's help towards me and my relationship with God, I've got it nailed down. And it seems to me that there's a great danger, I mean, it's a form of arrogance, or it could be, that we, we think we know all the answers in principle. And if we get to that point of thinking we know all the answers, then who are we trusting in? Now, yes, yeah, some of the answers, God comes into quite a lot of the answers. But if we feel we know all the answers, then we can end up feeling we know exactly what God's doing, we know what he's going to do, you know? We've almost got him taped in advance. Does that make any sense? That's how you lose a sense of wonder. Yeah, a sense of wonder, yes, and a sense of dependence. Because actually, in the verse in John 15 that Alex already mentioned that I think I might have said to him in that cafe or wherever it was, Jesus says, in verse 5 I think it is, Apart from me, or separated from me, you can do nothing. And that means separated from me, the living Jesus, the vine. Now yes, the, the Bible is, is the words and the, and the revelation of that living Jesus. But the Bible itself isn't Jesus, and the ideas and concepts aren't Jesus. Jesus is the living Lord and the vine. And we need to depend every day and every situation on him. And yet if we have used our faith in the Bible and our knowledge and our understanding of the Bible and his teaching to, to almost feel that, yeah, we, we've kind of got it sussed, there's a great danger there. Okay, let's plunge into the passage before I have to finish. <laughs> and let me just, I'll rattle through it. I'll just give you a few summaries of the sections and there's just one little section I want to home in on particularly <clears throat> Zophar is the third of Job's three friends to speak to him Job has had all kinds of terrible catastrophes he has been brought down to the dust he's lost home and family members and health to quite a large extent he's in a terrible state and yet he is a believer in God but he doesn't really know what's going on and he's seeking to trust God, and he's managing to some extent, but he sometimes doesn't trust God nearly as much as he should. And his friends come along, and a lot of the details of what the friend says is good, but very often, or nearly all the time, the general drift and the sort of application to Job, what they're really saying to Job's heart, is quite often wrong or unhelpful. Um, now that's 
you know, that's maybe to preempt verse, chapter 11 a bit, but that is certainly what's been going on for the previous few chapters. What does Zophar say? Well, in 1, one to 6, fairly briefly, what is Zophar saying? Or are all these words to go unanswered? This talker, will your idle talk? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? Zophar is saying, Job, you're talking arrogant rubbish. Who's going to shut you up? Isn't he? And indeed, not only is he saying that, but towards the end of 1 to 6, Zophar says, uh, in 5 and then the first half of 6, and indeed the whole of 6, um, I wish God would come and, and shut your mouth, and, and so on. And, and not only does he say that, at the end of 6 he says, Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. In other words, you've been brought down that much, but you know you deserve to be brought down even more. God's forgiven. This is, you know, God must have forgiven you some things. That's the implication, isn't it? So Zophar is claiming something. He's claiming to know, to some extent at least, why Job has had all this bad luck, isn't he? So he's claiming in effect. He's saying, you know, it's to do with your sin. And, and you know, you haven't been punished as much as you deserve. God has, God has forgotten something. You dirty rat. So he's saying, does that make sense? It's in general terms, one to six. Yep. <laughs> then, seven to nine, what does Zophar do? He, he teaches there the mysteries of God. He says God is, God is be, be above and beyond us sussing him out. And it's very beautiful. Is verses 7 to 9 correct theology, do you think? Quick answers, anybody? Yes, no, no, yes, maybe. Anybody? Yes, yes there's a yes. And the pastor's nodding his head. And Anna agrees, so that's it. And there's four <laughs> of us. There's four of us agree, so that must be right. Yeah, good. Seven to, not Molly, sorry. Seven to nine is. Seven to nine is a very beautiful statement of some correct teaching. If you want another passage, then... Write the last few verses of Romans chapter 11, uh, which is again quoting bits of the Old Testament. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Isn't that beautiful? It's true. It's beautiful. And it's something a bit like that that's being said in 7 to 9. Wonderful words. And so he's there saying, who can, who can fathom God's mysteries? And yet what has he just done? He's looked at a situation and a godly man who's been brought down to the dust and he said in verse 5 and 6, well it's obvious that you're a very sinful person and that you deserve even worse. And that's what God is doing to you. He's forgiving you a little bit, but he's basically... Uh, punishing you for most of your sins. Zophar has some good theology. He believes the Bible. He might be a conservative evangelical. See? A Bible-believing person, sort of character. That kind of dude. And he can articulate the truth very wonderfully. But when he comes to his own heart attitude, and his attitude to other people in real life he's something of a disaster isn't it? interesting worth considering that worth considering let's move on I want to come back to 7 to 9 in a minute 
before I'm done. A bit more on that. 10 to 12, verses 10 through 12. Well, it's, this is more inconsistency, you see. Basically, in 10 to 12, he's saying, in effect, uh, the implication in the context is that God has actually put Job in a prison, a prison of suffering. <laughs> and that Job is going to have to um, put up with it. You see, if God comes along and confines you in prison convene, and convenes a court, who can oppose him? You know, you're just going to have to put up with this joke. The implication is that 10 to 12 are relevant to Job. And so again, Zophar is claiming in effect to know that God has locked up Job in the prison of his suffering because of his sins. He is not taking dart what he himself said in the previous verses. And then the rest of it, 13 to 20, verse 13 to 20, again, despite the good theology in 7 to 9, what is Zophar saying? He's saying, in a way, Job, it's quite simple. If you repent, if you just get rid of your sins, you must have been doing some bad stuff. We don't all know about it. You didn't do it all in the public square. It's not all in the Daily Mail or the Guardian or something, right? Or on the internet. But nevertheless, there must be some pretty, must be some pretty murky skeletons in your cupboard. Very recent skeletons, probably. And if you repent of this, right? If you repent of your evil ways, then your life will be blessed and calm and all will be well. That's what he says in 13 to 20. And again, he's in effect making this claim that he's got it all figured out He's figured out that because God is good and God is powerful and God hates sin and because Job has fallen into these terrible things, therefore he knows what's what. And it's straightforward. He's got God and God's ways with human beings nailed down. And he's able to dispense very confidently this advice. And it's all recorded here for us in the Bible through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's also recorded here very clearly for us in chapters 1 and 2 and in chapter 42 that that, in terms of its application to Job, it is a load of rubbish. Now, the details, many of the details are true and wonderful. But in terms of his, his counselling, if you like, in terms of his pastoral counselling, it's complete rubbish. And that he is arrogant because he's thinking he's got God nailed, but he hasn't. He hasn't at all. And he hasn't paid attention to his own wonderful theology in verses 9, 7 to 9. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. Amen? Amen? Good, I've got an amen. Good. Wonderful. It's beautiful and wonderful. But are we paying attention to it? This is one of the main questions, isn't it? Um, now let me say one or two things before I come back to trying to apply it more. Um, 
I'm talking about here is something that's it's not often talked about, but it is sometimes, and I believe it's very important, and it's here in the Bible. And unfortunately, it's usually given a very long name, but I'm sure you can cope with it. It's called the doctrine of God's incomprehensibility. Right? And that means, well, it means he's incomprehensible. It doesn't mean that he doesn't speak to us. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't speak clearly. But it means that in terms of really grasping him, kind of nailing him even in our minds, that even with the Bible in front of us, even with God as a speaking God, and he is a speaking God, that even with the word of God and God as a speaking God, there are all kinds of things about what he's really like that we can't fully nail. So that God is a, a God who reveals himself, and yet even as he reveals himself, because he's revealing himself, the infinite God is revealing things about himself and his character, his triune nature as one in the X3, and his love and his power and his holiness and all the other things, and his immensity and his infinity, etc. When he's revealing these kind of things about himself, yes, we, we pick up a certain amount. There's a certain amount which, especially by His Spirit, when the Spirit's helping us with the Bible, we can, there's a certain amount we can grasp. But even when we grasp things about God, we're not fully grasping it. We're not getting a comprehensive knowledge and understanding, even of the things about God that He does reveal. There's revelation, and yet there's incomprehensibility at the same time. And I want to say a bit more about this. Okay? I don't want to get too philosophical, because actually I'll be completely out of my depth, as well as confuse you all. Um, if any of you are worrying about, is this some strange heresy that Chris has got from, I don't know, Open Theology or some weird group he's joined? No, it isn't. Um, if, you want, if, you, if, you read the, if you like theology books, and you've got any spare cash, or you might have it already, um, Herman Bavig, one of the fine Dutch theologians of the past, died in about 1920 or so, uh, his... <coughs> His books are republished in the four of them, four key volumes as well as lots of other stuff. He writes a glorious chapter on this. Uh, chapter one of volume two is called, I think, God's Incomprehensibility. And there's about 50 or 60 pages about it there. So if you want to do your homework or check up on this, just read home about it. Very good stuff. Very good stuff. But... Uh, let, me, let me read a couple of bits about I'll, I'll read just two or three sentences about it, where he's mainly quoting earlier writers. And then I'll say a bit more about what does this mean, what does this not mean. And then I'll come back to apply it and I'll be done. Okay? So that's a plan. That sounds like a plan to me. Good. So a bit of Bavink first. Here's, here's a bit of Bavink. And he's quoting Augustine here. <clears throat> this is in this chapter, uh, first chapter of Volume 2 of, of his Reformed Dogmatics. Here we are. We are speaking of God. Is it any wonder if you do not comprehend? Comprehend in the sense of fully grasp, you know, fully get it sorted, right? With, with all your questions answered. And you really get your mind around it. That's what the word comprehend means in a sentence. We are speaking of God. Is it any wonder if you do not comprehend? For, now cop this one, listen carefully. For, Speaking of God, and comprehending this sense. For if you comprehend, it is not God you comprehend. 
What about that? That's what Augustine says. That's what Baring says. And that's what I say. And I believe it's faithful to Job 11 and to Romans 11 as well. You know, if you've, if you've got a concept of God that you can really fathom and get your head around for you've got an idol. You've got an idol. I do, with all due respect. And look, I don't, I don't know you. There might be somebody here. Our dear Muslim friends and our dear uh, Jehovah's Witness friends. And, you know, you've got a few billion more people around the place as well, I dare say. You know, there is such an objection, isn't there, to the, to the, the Bible's doctrine that Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Father is God, and yet there's only one God, not three gods. And why is there so much objection? Well, for all kinds of reasons, you know. I'm sure can't cook, won't cook comes into it somewhere. Do you know what I mean by can't cook, won't cook? In other words, the will. You know, I can't cook, I can't cook. But then I don't want to cook. <laughs> and I've never really tried. I have a bad attitude. And, and okay, people are just, for all kinds of reasons, allergic to believing that Jesus of Nazareth is also God. But, <coughs> but there's also an intellectual thing. People say, well, it doesn't make sense. You know, I, can't, I, can't, <coughs> I can't fully understand it. You can't answer, a Christian can't answer all my questions about the Trinity. Therefore, I'm not going to believe in the Christian God. There is that, isn't there? <coughs> and I understand that. And on some things, I'm just like that. So I hope I'm not saying, oh, you silly people. But still, it's a valid point, isn't it? <coughs> if God is this God, this God whose mysteries we cannot fathom, in the way that Job 11 states it. If God is infinite, then of course there are going to be questions about the very nature of God that no finite mind can fully get its head around. And even if God told us the answers, we wouldn't understand them, and that's one of the reasons he doesn't tell us them all. Now that doesn't mean that we're just into a complete sea of mysticism and we can all stand on our heads and, you know, forget our brains and, and believe whatever makes us feel good. No, I'm not saying that. There are good reasons for believing the Bible and there are good reasons for believing that Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God and the Father is God and yet there's only one God. There are good reasons for doing that. The reasons are to do with testimony. They're to do with God demonstrating his presence in history over thousands of years and in the life of Jesus and in his resurrection and, and, and the claim of Jesus to be the Son of God who came from the Father. It is those reasons of historical evidence and of testimony and of what Jesus and other prophets clearly spoke. That's why we believe it. We don't believe the Trinity because we've sussed it out. We don't believe the Trinity if we're the right hand Christian believers, I would say. We don't believe the Trinity because we've sorted the doctrine of the Trinity out. You know? That's what I'm saying. That makes sense. Any question? Anybody who's got, got a question I've been talking to? Any questions? Do you see where I'm going? Yeah. So that I'm not teaching just complete irrationality and we close down the use of our minds. No. And there are good reasons for believing the Christian faith and believing the Bible. But there are in the midst of all that, if we believe in an infinite creator God, yes, who has made us in his image, so that, that there, there are things about him that we are, can as creatures understand that he reveals to us, certainly. But if we, but he is the infinite creator, then of course, and we're fine of course, there are going to be all kinds of things that are just completely beyond our, our ability 
to understand with our finite minds. And we should expect that. We should positively expect it. And we shouldn't be freaked out about it. We shouldn't be ashamed about it. We shouldn't think, oh, I should have an answer to that. Well, there are some things maybe you should have an answer to by now, but there's a lot of things you jolly well shouldn't have an answer to. And if you think you've got an answer, you're deluding yourself, or you're arrogant, or you've even got the wrong God. See that? Does that make sense? Let, let me just quote a bit more about here. He's, he's still quoting Augustine, I think. And he says, yes, I, I just read out the wonderful sentence, if you comprehend, it is not God you comprehend. That's a good one. My congregation in North London, they like that. I've said that ten times on different occasions. And we like, we've got to like that one. Whether it means they're all now mystics, I don't know. But I don't think it does. I don't think it does. <clears throat> he goes on. Let it... <coughs> Let it be a pious confession of ignorance rather than a rash profession of knowledge. To attain some slight knowledge of God is a great blessing. To comprehend him, however, is totally impossible. Say Babing and Augustine. And then just one more quote from these old guys. This is quoting Hilary. Hilary of Poitiers, I think, but I can't remember where. But he's a long time ago anyway. Some very reverend person, theologian from a long time ago. Quoting Hillary, The perfection of learning is to know God in such a way that, though you realize he is not unknowable, yet you know him as indescribable. We sang about that, didn't we, one song? Didn't we? You believe it already, that's one of them. But that's it. This is it, is what we're saying. And here it is. And it's important. So yes, let me try and draw these together a little bit. Of course we know certain things about God. Not because we figured him out, but because he has come and spoken to us. He spoke to Abraham. He spoke to Moses. He spoke to David. He spoke to Isaiah and many others. And his Holy Spirit guided them in writing things down. And God has preserved it for us. And then he spoke supremely in Jesus Christ. And then Jesus' apostles were able to write about him through the spirit that Jesus poured out on them. And now we have this book that we call the Bible. So in that sense, yes, God has spoken clear words. We affirm that, of course. We need the spirit of God to grasp hold of those words properly. We need the spirit. In one very real sense, the Bible's not enough. The Bible without the spirit, we won't figure it out properly at all. We all will see but with the ministry of the Spirit in our minds and hearts and, and working through our brothers and sisters as well, then yes, we can know certain things about God and we can have some correct ideas about God. Of course we can. But we can't fully suss him out. We can't fully suss his ways out. Even, let me just say just a tiny bit more about that. We can't. And then we'll get close to our application, going back to the application. Even basic words about God, I would suggest, like God's love, God's anger, God's power, God's justice, God's righteousness, even on those things, 
these were, there is a clear parallel, there's a clear analogy. Yes, we are in God's image. And so when we say God is love, there must be something analogous in God, something similar in God to love as we know it in this world. There must be something similar. Hence the human word love in different languages is used. So yes, there must be an analogy, a similarity that is possible because God has spoken in human languages and because human beings and human languages, human beings are in his image. So there's an analogy there, but it's not necessarily identical in every way. You know, there are ways in which anger in God is a little bit different from anger in us and, and surely even love and justice and power. You know, God's power is infinite, for example. God's love is infinite. We can't fully conceive of that. So even on these basic words we rightly and necessarily use about God, there are aspects of it which are analogous rather than absolutely in every way identical. I and these learned, much more learned people would suggest. And then quite often, God even uses what are sometimes termed as anthropomorphisms. That is, he speaks to us as if he was a human being. And the Bible very clearly makes it plain he's not a human being. He hasn't got hands and eyes and, you know, arms and stuff. And a literal face. And yet the Bible speaks in those ways sometimes, doesn't it? And it talks about him regretting what he'd done and, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. It even says in one of the Psalms that it pleads for God to wake up like a warrior after he's recovered from his drink. Have you noticed that one? The warrior after wine? Do you read the Psalms? You read the Psalms in this church. Sooner or later you'll come to the Psalm where it, it's longing for God to wake up. It's like a, a mighty warrior who's, you know, fought and done all kinds of wonderful things and had, and had quite a lot to drink and he's gone to sleep and he's just like a baby while he's asleep and kids can come along and poke him and nothing happens. But in the end the wine wears off and he gets up and then you better watch out. And it even, it even says in one of the Psalms there's a prayer that God will wake up like a warrior after his wine. Now it doesn't mean that God... Course, you know, it's not saying God's a, like a trunk of the cross, it isn't God forbid. You know, and, it, and, and these are anthropomorphic. So, so we're so far, this is a good, good point, isn't it? This, God is so, we're so far from being able to fully figure God out that sometimes he can't even use words that are analogous like love and power and anger and justice. He has to resort to these speaking as though he's a man, even though he's not a man. He has to reject. You always come down just to baby talk in cartoons with us. Goo 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 ga 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 ga. Yeah, let me give you some idea of what I'm like by using these funny phrases and these funny pictures. Because the distance between us, though we're in his image, and God is so great because he is that indescribable God. Isn't that amazing? And you might say, oh, Chris, but if we take all this on board, we'll be reading our Bible saying, I don't know what it means, I don't know what it means, I don't know what it means, I'm totally lost, I'll have to go back. You know, I'm not, no. And, you know, where, where are we going to go then? Well, keep reading it, keep using your mind. But you know what? The Christian life is, and the church, indeed, it's not you and your Bible, you know. It is you and your Bible, but it's not just you and your Bible. It's not you, your Bible, and Alex, or you, your Bible, and some other teacher or leader in the church either. And it's not you and your Bible and Herman Bowing on your shelf either. Just in case you think it is. Do you know what it is? It's you and your brothers and sisters and your Bible and the Holy Spirit. And I don't mean emotions. I mean the Holy Spirit who affects our minds and our wills and our emotions. At the end of the day, our confidence that God is showing us himself 
and leading us on and helping us to get a stronger faith and to grow in love and to grow in Christ-likeness. Our confidence at the end of the day is in the fact that if we belong to Jesus as Saviour and Lord, then God himself, his Holy Spirit, is in your life. And the Holy Spirit will open up the Bible and Christian teaching to you and individually and as a congregation as much as he wants to. And at the end of the day, you're not in the hands of my theory, Herman Babbing, or just you struggling around the Bible, now thinking it's a bit more confusing than you thought at four o'clock today. No. Trust the living God. Are you okay with that? Good. Sounds like most of you are. So that's, that's the majority of what I want to say. Let me see if there's any applications I should have included that I have forgotten. <clears throat> Just two, yes, two or three final applications of this kind of stuff. Sometimes people are saying, in effect, whether they use these words or this is what's going on in their minds, sometimes people, not only those who may at the moment be Jehovah's Witnesses or Muslims and have problems about the Trinity, but lots of other people too, maybe some of you, or people you know, people with some kind of vague Christian background. Sometimes there are people whose attitude is virtually to God is like this. Your arms are folded, and I'm not hereby condemning the two in the room who've got your arms folded. Oh, three. Three. Three and a half. Your arms are folded, and you're basically saying to God, okay, God, if you show yourself to me in the way that I want, if you answer my questions to my satisfaction, then I'll trust you. And some of that is, some, if you're intellectual types, then some of that is intellectual. You've got your funny little intellectual questions you need answering. And what I'm saying to you is, forget it. Some of your questions are never going to be answered. Some of your questions, even if you answer them, you wouldn't understand it. And other questions, you don't want to answer. He's given you plenty of evidence to trust him. The amazing character and beauty and complexity of creation. And what you know of right and wrong in your own conscience and heart. And especially what you know about Jesus Christ and the evidence for him and his resurrection, etc., etc. He's given you plenty of evidence. Trust him without having all your questions answered. Because he is anyway the indescribable God. Where I'm asking you, and he's asking you, trust the indescribable God. Don't be like that. That's, that's, that's important, isn't it? Secondly, if you're one of these tidy types, you're a neat and tidy thinker. Watch out. I don't know whether there's any of you, but among... I, can't, I don't mind these labels, but sometimes they're useful, so I'm going to use some labels. Among conservative evangelical Christians, have you heard those kind of labels? Mm-hmm. Reformed? Anyway, I'm just about managed to get them out of my mouth. Among Christians like that, you know, people like that, they, they, we, we, I suppose we, sort of, semi, not really, but kind of pretending, we. <laughs> Be brave. Be brave. Well, we, we like it all neatly. We like to know, some of us, and some of you, I guess, you like to know your view on everything. You like to have your view sorted out on stuff. And when you've got your view sorted out on stuff, you feel very pleased with yourself. And you feel secure. You feel kind of safe. You feel as though, to some extent, you've got your Christian life or your future 
kind of under your control. That there are certain things God won't do to you. There are certain ways he won't tip you upside down. There are certain ways he won't confuse you. There are certain elements of suffering or difficulty he won't bring into your life. At least while you continue to read your Bible and pray every day and repent of sin quickly. You think you, you know, there are certain disasters in your life that you think won't happen to you as, while you continue with your system and you continue as a good evangelical Christian. And, 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 we, and we, what we've been doing in that case is, lot, there's lots of things we might be doing. One of the things you might be doing wrong with that attitude, which is a completely stupid, disastrous attitude, obviously. We haven't got the future nailed. You, God may treat us like Job, like he treated Job next week. I mean, you know, get with the program. And one thing that may be going wrong with that attitude is we're trying to use our intellects to control God. We're trying to suss him out. And we're trying to control everything. And we're then also feeling that because we are the right kind of, the correct brand of conservative evangelicals, not like those nasty, slightly too narrow conservative evangelicals over there, or the, the wrong ones over there either, that in some way we feel we're better Christians. Because of our doctrinal views, we're actually better and even when the Holy Spirit really comes to bless Streatham or South London or London or Britain, he's bound to bless us first. We're at the front of the queue because we've got the best theology. And that is such arrogant garbage. Number one, is it really the best theology? But even if it is, are you putting it into practice? Are you trusting him more? Are you loving him more? Are you loving other people more? Are you caring about people who don't know Jesus more? Are you praying more? Very often, those with the better theology are busy patting themselves on the back, feeling superior and sorted out and in control, and the people who are ropier and more confused and wrong on, you're wrong on slightly more obvious points are getting on seeking God and praying and loving people and pouring themselves out in service. And only God knows who's better and worse, not us arrogant twits. Terrible. Repent of it. And finally, final thing. If and when, when, I don't see, when suffering comes into your life. And I believe that for every true Christian, suffering, real suffering, comes sooner or later. Sometimes it lasts a very long time. When suffering comes in to us, into our lives, sometimes real born-again Christians get completely freaked out by life. And we all get a bit freaked out. But sometimes we get very freaked out. And we get very confused. We really think, hold on a minute. I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad a Christian. I haven't failed or let God down that much. You know, I've even got, I've got better theology than those people, and I pray more than that person, and I'm not nearly, not nearly as bad as that Christian. So why is this happening to me? And do you know what we sometimes do at that point? We start doubting the goodness of God. And we start losing confidence in the goodness of God. And there's all kinds of reasons for doing that. But one of them might be that you have forgotten God's incomprehensibility. You've forgotten the message of Job. You can't figure him out. 
and an awful lot of God's reasons for doing stuff, you don't know. And you're not going to know in this world. And God wants you and me to be happy about that. But quite often we're not. Quite often. Especially if we're these biblical Christians who think we understand God. We think we jolly well ought to understand. And I say, rubbish. Rubbish. Trust the goodness of the incomprehensible and yet known in Jesus. Known God. Amen. Amen. Should we pray? Father in heaven, help us to grasp these things better and yet to be content not to grasp everything. Help us to sift what has been said. You know what, how we've reacted. You know our thoughts. Search us, O God. Know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Forgive us our arrogance and our attempt to use our intellect sometimes to control reality and to control you. Instead, we throw ourselves into your hands. We trust in you, our Father, and we trust in Jesus, and we trust in the Holy Spirit who reveals good things as much as we need to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. As we sit, can one or two just uh, uh, continue in prayer uh, in response to what we've heard?